0: Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Layton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast. Trent Kling along with Leighton Kling will discuss A&W's efforts to bring more franchisees into the fold. We'll also talk about Wendy's and their relative success in their latest quarter and rumors of another FSR industry bankruptcy. This edition of the Food Focus Podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water. If you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop, Well, the secret is that coffee shops spend thousands of dollars conditioning their water. Third Wave Water can do the same thing for you at home. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. Now, we begin this episode of the Food Focus podcast with a grocer in the northeastern United States and in the mid-Atlantic region as Weiss Markets reported contracting profits for their last quarter on double-digit increases in revenue. Weiss Markets is a grocer with a total of 204 supermarkets. As I mentioned earlier, they're in the northeastern and now mid-Atlantic United States. They have purchased more holdings and opened more stores a little bit further south, particularly in Maryland and Virginia. The chain has evolved over the years, and because of that, their store footprints vary widely from store to store, or from market to market up until the 1950s. Quite a while ago, they had many locations as smaller corner street markets, almost the size of C stores. In 1955, they consolidated their stores into the larger, more conventional stores that are more prevalent today throughout the Wise chain. And now as a larger, more well-known grocery, they have about a dozen private label brands, including organic and all natural offerings. And, and late when they got here, Through expansion, that's one of the reasons why their top line revenue is increasing, but at the same time, it's kind of frightening to watch profits shrink and margins shrink as well.
1: And it really makes sense, Trent, because if you look at how they've been accelerating the number of acquisitions as of late, you would think that this will help their top line revenue, but acquiring existing stores is not cheap. So that will eat into their profits, at least in the short to midterm. But you can see that they're no stranger to acquiring some stores that already have existing locations. You see in the 1990s, the company started purchasing existing stores from such operators as IGA. King's, and Mr. Z's, but now the company is greatly expanding their efforts to grow. And we see that on August 1st of 2016, the company purchased five Mars supermarket stores located in Maryland. Wise Markets acquired these locations and their operations in an effort to expand their presence in the Baltimore County region. And then we fast forward to September of 2016. The company began its acquisition of 38 former Food Lion LLC stores. These stores were in, of course, Maryland, Virginia, but also Delaware. And then you fast forward to October 30th 2016 wise markets acquired one former Nell's family market located in east berlin pennsylvania from c and s wholesale grocers but most of these deals involved a lot of real estate trend at least partially or wholly and i think this is going to be good for them long term as they try to make their liquidity position a little bit better in the future, but in 2016, in total, they acquired 44 stores, so really fast-tracking. Again, if you were to compare to their 204 supermarkets that they have now, quite an expansion there in terms of store count. It may be that they are seeing competition becoming tighter, especially in the Southeast, so they're really trying to grow quickly while interest rates are still fairly low the Fed has increased them minimally in the past year. But overall, you see a large capital influx for a lot of grocers and a lot of retailers right now that are trying to buy up struggling chains. But right now, you see that the interest burden isn't that large for them. They did get approved in September by Wells Fargo for a $100 million revolving line of credit. And they were able to extend that to $120 million this year in March. But the five Mars stores were purchased for just under $25 million dollars the 38 food lion stores for just over 29 million dollars so these price discrepancies here exist because they are taking on different debt obligations each of these stores had existing debt on their balance sheets so they are trying to cover that but if you compare these purchase prices to the credit line that they were able to get approved of last year This is really not that big of a debt burden for the company, and currently they have around $70 million in long-term debt outstanding on their balance sheet, and they make a big deal about having right-sized markets, so they're really careful of what locations they are purchasing. They want to be able to fit within what they call, again, right-sized markets between 50 and 60,000 square feet. When opening new stores in Maryland in 2013, Dennis Curtin Their director of public relations said that the larger 200,000 plus square foot grocers that we've become accustomed to, you really have to pack a lunch to shop there. That's how he's put it. That's a really interesting take because where Weiss is at, this I feel like is a good methodology. You don't want stores that are too large. And I think if you look at the successful concept in neighborhood market by Walmart, that averages 42,000 square feet. So I think they are onto something with this concept.
0: So the average Weiss store that they're opening or taking over, slightly larger than that neighborhood market concept, which they feel like is large enough to give them at least enough selection for the consumer, but also small enough for consumers to be able to navigate reasonably. And also in circumstances where they're not able to buy up all of the real estate, it saves them a little bit there on rent. Internally, I find it interesting that within their organization, they emphasize three tenets. They look at value, variety, and service. Now, this isn't all that different from a lot of other grocers, but they really try to hammer that home to their employees and to these local operators. Additionally, they emphasize a lot of local products and they've done so for quite some time. In fact, they were kind of ahead of the trend in terms of emphasis of buying local and selling local as they put forth Massive efforts to do so in the 90s and early portion of the 2000s. Now let's talk a little bit about their latest earnings report. This reporting period was for their fiscal first quarter which concluded on April 1st. As we mentioned at the top of this story, they reported a 15.4% increase in top-line revenue. Without the addition, though, of the Food Lion and Nell's Family Market acquisitions that we talked about, they would have been on track to lose sales year over year by about 3%. So many of the existing wise markets that were out there had largely falling same-store sales. Some of these Food Lion stores, though, saw increasing same-store sales, and overall the chain reported same-store sales falling by just 0.9%, which is not nearly as bad as some of these other regional grocers we've covered of late we've mentioned in the past super value and how much their same store sales have been falling of late so 0.9 percent basically right in line with inflation they're not growing store sales but they're not shrinking all that much net income was the big headline however once you look past that top line increase the quarterly profit of 11.8 million dollars they had in the first quarter of this fiscal year was representative of a 41.2 percent decline while earnings per share total just $0.44, cents, down from $0.75 cents in 2016's first quarter. There were a number of reasons to blame for the profit miss, at least as far as management was concerned. Layton already discussed some of the expenditures that you experience when you're buying a new store chain. There are, of course, synergies that can be unlocked, but you experience a few costs on the way to getting to those synergies. So that, of course, is one possible reason for their profit, Miz, and it seems to at least have put a little bit of a dent in their bottom line. Their CEO and chairman, Jonathan Weiss, actually said in a statement that their net income was impacted by the Easter and New Year's holiday shift compared to the first quarter of 2016. We've talked on prior episodes about how grocery stores, perhaps more than just about any other food-related business, can cite that Easter holiday shift moving from first quarter to the second quarter as a reason for the falling in the same store sales. And In fact, I would be anxious to see what their second quarter looks like because Because if you were to move the impact of Easter to the first quarter, I would posit that you might actually see positive same-store sales across the chain, including those Food Lion stores. They also mentioned a mild winter, but again, that's something that we've talked about on prior episodes that neither one of us really buy into as far as grocery is concerned. And in fact, oftentimes, grocers will blame harsh winters, icy or snowy conditions for the lack of people getting out and doing shopping. There's a double-edged sword that exists, of course. If consumers are aware of these snowy or icy conditions coming in, they'll run to the store for some of the essentials, your milk, your bread, that type of thing, and you'll get the run on those type of items. But at the same time, during those ice or snowstorms, you're not going to see the same business as you would have otherwise. So in this case, I would argue that a mild winter would have actually added, in all likelihood, to their bottom line, at least based on inputs from other grocers during the first quarter. So we buy the calendar shift a little bit more. That shift of Easter probably did do some real damage as far as same-store sales metrics and net income were concerned, but not so sure about the mild winter issue really impacting their bottom line. Layton, you mentioned investments and some of their investments they've already made. What are some investments they're looking to make going forward as they attempt to continue to build out this chain?
1: So the over 40% drop in net income is not going to deter the company from investing in their already existing infrastructure. They said about two weeks ago that they plan to pump in another $90 million into new and existing infrastructure surrounding their stores. In this announcement, the company laid out plans which really seem all encompassing. So with new stores, they mentioned remodels, supply chain improvements, and continued information technology upgrades. So we always talk about point of sale and how to increase a lot of the technology surrounding that so you can gather customer data and really make transactions a little bit faster because throughput at the grocery register is ever important as it is in the restaurant industry. So the timing is a little bit interesting based on this announcement. again happened about two weeks ago so actually before they came out with their earnings announcement so I feel as though they wanted to soften the blow for those shareholders but more specifically we really do like the transparency here and the fact that they are recognizing some of their older stores need to be touched on they said they're going to remodel about 14 of these in the coming two years and they're going to be big on energy efficiency they claimed in 2011 they had already cut energy use by about 30 percent in their existing stores And you talk about continued expansion of their distribution center as well. Overall, they have seven new stores in the active planning stages and expect most of them to open in 2018. So there's a lot going on here. And while not directly discussed, the company did seem big on the idea that their 23,000 employees are their key to success. So I am curious to see if they have any plans to increase wages or have any other sort of benefit programs. And this can either help the customer service metrics or it can just boost employee morale, which obviously leads to lesser employee turnover numbers in the long run. But if you look at their shares, they were down at the end of trading last week by about 6%. They have remained there around $54, $55 a share. The company does offer a dividend to its shareholders since it is profitable. Well, from grocery retail to the restaurant industry, we transition to A&W restaurants as they are looking to grow out as franchisees are seeing increased traffic numbers and profits from their existing locations. And this comes at a time where there is pricing pressure and more total QSRs in the United States than ever before. And this news shows that there is still demand for the 94-year-old brand in A&W. As we go through a brief history, it is important to understand the company's background and exactly how we got to this point because they have hit some rough times over the last decade or so. The 1st AW location was actually drawn from inspiration outside a root beer stand that one of the founders visited in 1919 near Sacramento, California. Four years later, in 1923, Roy W. Allen and Frank Wright opened the first restaurant that served as a drive through location in Lodi, California. The name A&W, therefore, comes from the surname initials of the original partners. What is amazing is that they had started to franchise their concept after only two years in business, and it still stands as one of the first restaurants to successfully implement a franchising model. They sold the chain in 1950, and after that, the company was bought and sold several times through private equity deals, and partnerships but in the late 1990s the company merged with Long John Silver's to form Yorkshire Global Restaurants Tricon Global Restaurants purchased Yorkshire in 2002 and then changed their name to Yum Brands which of course we know today as the parent company of Pizza Hut KFC Taco Bell and Wing Street but in December of 2011 Yum then sold A&W to a consortium of A&W franchisees a great American brand it's called and this alliance stays true today the price however was not disclosed but many speculate that yum brands wanted to just dispose of the asset and really weren't hesitant to do so so it's understood that they were potentially getting a really good deal when yum divested this asset but trent the last decade really has been a struggling and trying time for the franchise but they really do seem like they are coming back
0: they project this year to have net new restaurant growth be positive, and technically last year it was positive by two restaurants, but they're looking for even more now in 2017. At the end of 2012, the chain had about 1,200 restaurants globally with about 890 in the U.S. In case you're interested about A&W, as far as Canada is concerned, that is actually a separate company altogether and W is very popular north of the border. So you take those 1200 locations and nearly 900 in the US and compare them to now in 2017 where they have only 634 locations in the US, but again, officially two more they had in the calendar year 2016 and this is where they're looking to grow. They see these 600 locations as a solid base from which to build out their platform and they're now seeking new franchisees. This much was released in a recent presser as they mentioned back in february that they were looking to go forth with a new franchise sales initiative they reported in february system-wide revenue growth and most recently they have reported record revenue growth for the company they seek a total of 20 new total locations in 2017 and if you go to their franchise website which is awfranchising.com you can see a map of where some of these developments are slated to take place and it is in no one specific area of the country on this map you have a number of brown dots where there are existing a restaurants these are either co-branded restaurants with long john silvers or kfc or these are restaurants within convenience stores, which is actually something that a w has been bullish on of late. In fact, attending a convenience store conference in Kansas City just a few months ago. They have around 87 stores within convenience stores. In the United States, but they're looking for more solid franchisees that are freestanding. NWCOO Paul Martino said the average franchisee of a standalone restaurant has seen same-store sales jump on a stack basis 30% since 2011. So you're looking at a six-year stack of same-store sales. The reason he used 2011 it's not just an arbitrary endpoint. This was when former this was when former parent Yum Brands had officially sold. A&W to its franchisees so there are multiple reasons for the better than average growth at A&W now the company's management says the results speak to franchisees individual financial success but also their investment in the program remember that A&W is not owned by a private equity firm and in fact this is something that they noted in the press release Kevin Bowsner, A&W's president mentioned in this press release the fact that they aren't owned by private equity groups and because their ownership group is comprised mostly of franchisees their owners don't have an exit strategy so it's not their job to build up a chain and then sell it off or take it public they want to stay in the business for a long haul and he said that franchisees therefore new franchisees can take solace in this fact the newfound autonomy for a and the fact that they don't have co-branded locations seems to be working in the favor of these franchisees because they can better focus on the individual performance of A&W, which in turn can make them more profitable. It also opens up these restaurants to sell full A&W menus rather than having to share menu space with Long John Silver's or KFC and also devote kitchen space to those two things so you can have a smaller square footage store or at least a smaller square footage kitchen and you can save money on the development cost. Branding in-store and store design has also been much cleaner for franchisees without the co-branded store, and they mentioned communication between the franchisees and the company. I think in terms of them trying to attract franchisees, the big number that they're dangling out is the average cost of initial investment, which is fairly low. Now, because a tailors each franchise to that franchisee's needs, It does vary widely. It says on their franchisee website, in fact, that it varies anywhere between $181,000 and upwards of $1.4 million. And again, that's independent of real estate, so it's very dependent on square footage. But unlike a lot of other restaurants with franchisees, especially in the QSR industry, they don't have a ton of requirements it doesn't matter if it's in a strip mall it does not matter if it's freestanding it doesn't need to be on a corner location they don't have a minimum square footage they say their restaurants are successful in a variety of footprints and what's more, the franchise fee is a relatively reasonable $30,000 up front. It's a 20-year term with that franchise fee, and then royalty and advertising fees, 5% apiece. So if you're a franchisee looking to jump in, especially with an iconic brand such as a and a lot of these terms seem fairly reasonable, and so they're getting a lot of franchisees that are hopping in that are individual franchisees, not enormous franchise groups, and effectively, they're running the these ANWs individually as small businesses.
1: I think right here we're talking about the right amount of flexibility and the right amount of commitment. You mentioned the 20-year commitment that a lot of franchisees are having to make when signing up and starting a franchise. I believe that looking in the long term is going to make these the most profitable and successful locations possible while also offering to give each individual franchisee the benefit of knowing their own individual market. For instance, we look at other franchises across the country and they do have a minimum square footage requirement or a maximum square footage requirement. And then they also like to look at the demographics of a given area. They're really putting trust in the franchisees with this. And also you had mentioned communication trend. They are having more meetings, more of a hands-on approach by visiting individual locations and encouraging franchisees to work with the staff even during business hours. They spoke about how having people work with the cooks working at the point of sale dealing with customers firsthand in this communication reinforces not only to the hourly employees but the general management and the customers that everybody is engaged in the sole purpose of making it a better hands-on experience and this really has resulted in better engaged franchisee and the executive teams are listening to the feedback whether it's promotional or otherwise this allows them to get a feel for how each location or each market is doing and the structure is circular and that the franchisees are engaging more so in turn the general managers will engage more and it trickles down to those hourly associates but the company says all of these initiatives have really encouraged some franchisees to build out their portfolio and some want to house over 100 locations and some already do so some want to drive that number up even from there but they're really driving customer engagement also through their mug club program which issues a free root beer float every year On a person's birthday, among other deals. So, we always talk about membership programs and how this boosts brand loyalty and brand engagement. But lastly, New products have helped the company. A lot of franchisees suggested they do this. And back in 2013, we saw new hand-breaded chicken tenders, which boosted chicken demand at these locations by about 50%. In October of 2013, a opened its first new concept restaurant. Again, sort of a coming together of ideas here. a ws Burgers, Chicken, and Floats. Right now, for example, they've rolled out pub baskets with cod or shrimp fries, and coleslaw this is an intriguing move because it is outside the seasonality of lent of course but overall all of these things are going to be helping to boost traffic and then boost profitability and i would not be surprised to see additional double-digit store unit increases next year
0: Layton, you and I have the opportunity because we do this podcast and because of some of our other business efforts to see inside the franchising efforts of a great number of restaurants, QSRs, FSRs running the entire gamut. And to me, a ws franchise process from beginning to end just seems a lot more personable. It seems as though a is is really truly invested on the success of franchisees. There are a number of restaurants that are out there and restaurant chains that seem to, once they go ahead and get the money up front for that franchise fee, get some of the royalties every year, they're a little more hands-off and they're not quite as concerned with the success of the individual franchisee. I would say exactly the opposite is true with A&W. And that's not just a matter of how they portray it to the media. That's a matter of how they actually interact with franchisees and some of the mechanisms that they have in place. For example, a lot of restaurants will have a type of discovery day and that's what a calls it where you go to a training center and learn some of the tricks of the trade. But Leighton, you mentioned the training doesn't end there. It's a pretty constant basis. They really try to impress upon the franchisees to remain engaged with their individual locations. So a has been doing this now for a few years. They're seeing success with franchisees and again, they are putting it out there that they want to grow their total number of franchises. But one final note regarding AW and this new franchising push there is one thing that I would caution against. I think both of us are pretty bullish on the concept because it is a specialized concept and it is something that is almost a treat when you come across an AW just because they are not that frequently occurring in certain areas of the country. And for example, I live in an area where the nearest AW is about an hour and a half away. In preparation for this story, I visited that A&W and talked to some of the customers there and they had mentioned that it was basically like a pilgrimage for them. A lot of them had come from 30 minutes to an hour away just to come to the A&W because the concept was that specialized. So if you add franchisees to this system, I do worry that there might be an effect of cannibalization here. It's not similar to other businesses, let's say a Starbucks. The effect of cannibalization there because Starbucks are pretty frequently occurring throughout the country. But instead, where you have some of these franchisees having success because pilgrimages are made to their A and Ws. If you open up an A and W within, say, an hour radius of the previous franchisee, that franchisee may see a decline in same store sales so I would guard against that as far as analyzing a as potential to grow over a thousand locations in the U.S. but it does appear as though they have runway to grow around 100 to 200 locations and there is a lot of white space on their current store location map you know Leighton we talk a lot about beverages on this podcast a lot about the coffee industry For our listeners, if you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop, whether it's the likes of Starbucks or a more local chain, well, here is the secret for those coffee chains and those coffee shops. They spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, that's right, just 10 cents per cup, you can duplicate that magic in the comfort of your own home.
1: Third Wave Water has a patent-pending formula of minerals that, when added to a gallon of distilled water, makes coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water
0: week in week out we talk about people eating in the comfort of their own homes drinking in the comfort of their own homes we talk about these robust to go programs and now you can do the same thing basically with coffee check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code focus that's f-o-c-u-s for 10 percent off your first order again thirdwavewater.com use the promo code focus for third wave water We stay in the QSR industry as Wendy's shares popped on a solid first quarter this last week as the company's initiatives seem to be taking hold. Wendy's has been taking off on the stock market for about the last five years as they've shot up from under $5 per share to now well over $15 per share. The company has been reiterating recently a renewed approach to their business with a mix of refranchising some company-owned restaurants, better food as well and investing in the food, and also increased amounts of advertising some analysts point to the success of their four for four dollars deal as a catalyst for sales in the first quarter and of course something we'll mention later on in this story is their social media presence which as far as their twitter feed goes is very unique but first the financial results the company posted its 17th consecutive quarter of positive same store sales so four years and one quarter worth of positive same store sales as wendy's north american sales were up 1.6 percent this beat analyst expectations of 1.1 percent in an era where a lot of QSRs are struggling a little bit to hammer in those same store sales numbers without significant initiatives like All Day Breakfast, for example, on behalf of McDonald's. Wendy's was able to get good positive same store sales increases in this latest quarter without a brand new program or without massive rollouts management was quick to point out on the conference call that same store sales on a two-year stack basis were up 5.2 percent and again over this time it's not like they have an all-day breakfast to point out rather they are executing more efficiently on a restaurant level their four for four dollars deal seems to be working and their investment towards marketing the quality of their food also seems to be helping their top line revenues
1: and i'm glad you prefaced the story with the refranchising effort that wendy's has been undergoing and we talked about their annual investor day where they really said this was the future not only are they remodeling and refreshing a lot of their locations they're looking to sell off these company-owned locations to really good franchisees again another theme for Wendy's here with franchisees and and building up a trustworthy relationship, but that explains why revenues fell almost $90 million for the first quarter of 2017. Total revenues were $285.8 million, compared to the $378.8 million for the first quarter of 2016. This is representative of a 24.6% decrease. But the company points out this is primarily from that ownership change with 301 fewer company operated restaurants at the end of the first quarter 2017. So they still beat expectations though, on the revenue front by about $3 million expectations from analysts, of course. And then on the profit side, they beat as well earnings per share fell 18% again because of less revenue overall. But earnings per share came in at $0.09, cents, and this was actually a penny above Wall Street forecast. And if you look here at the reasons why the company is doing and performing so well, you see that Wendy's is also on track to have about half of its restaurants up on mobile ordering by the end of the year, and testing delivery also towards the second half. And they're also considering a loyalty program. And so you talk about also this re activation is looking to really boost long-term traffic for the franchise and we'll get into some in-store kiosks they're talking about a little bit later and their own company goals but general administrative expenses were 52.4 million dollars for the first quarter And this compares to 64.7 in the first quarter of 2016. And this, of course, is because the company is operating less stores. But I feel as though this is beating company expectations, this overarching goal to reduce general and administrative expenses by about 1.5% of global system-wide sales by 2020. The dollar amount is upwards of $35 million in cost savings. And by selling these locations off to franchisees, they're hoping to have a better, more efficient platform to work with and really trying to optimize everything so everyone's on the same page and then it will all end up in some cost savings by 2020. But restaurant margin came in at 16.7 in the first quarter, a slight decrease compared to the first quarter of 2016. The decrease was primarily a result of higher labor costs. Commodities were flat, however. We talk about higher labor costs. This is because of wage inflation. Wages are going up. Even in the QSR industry, multiple states are having minimum wage hikes, and this is going to affect some industries, especially the QSR industry, where you have operators such as Wendy's that participate and have business holdings in nearly every state. Another bad thing is they are now expecting inflation from commodity inputs. This is primarily the food that they serve to rise one and a half to two percent, whereas before the company was expecting neutral prices. And Trent, this was something you and I have been saying both on the Retail Focus and Food Focus podcast for the last three to four months, and that we think that food deflation or food stagnation is actually going to go away in the coming quarters. And it looks as though we're right. A lot of analysts are predicting that we may even hit 3% food inflation towards the latter half of the calendar year 2017. But Overall, this will arguably help the grocery industry's revenues, but also put pressure on the restaurants as they've already been trying to compete on price. And this is something a lot of analysts had asked during the conference call as to if they're going to have any promotional pricing decreases because of the higher competition levels. But overall, anytime you see that the grocery industry will also be impacted, this really takes away from the thesis that sales are going to the grocery retail sector away from the QSR and FSR industry. So it could be a wash by the end of the day. But as for the promotions and partnerships, they cited some strong partnerships, really boosting in traffic at their individual locations here in the United States. They mentioned the NCAA basketball tournament in which they were highly recognized. They were recognized as the NCAA's official hamburger during the event. We talk about the Final Four and the Sweet 16, how big that is for the country. And ratings were solid this year. And again, the success trend that you mentioned With the 4 for 4 campaign, which I've personally heard of and seen on nearly every media platform. I've heard of it on my Pandora account. TV ads and online ads via YouTube. They've had success in adding the double stack also to that four for four, which was actually rolled out in a limited time extension in January, but turned into a permanent fixture on April 1st. But they also brought back the popular North Pacific cod sandwich and highlighted the Asiago Ranch Chicken Club as part of the deals as well.
0: You mentioned one of the things that I like most about what Wendy's has done over the last 6 to 12 months in terms of mentioning their marketing campaign. The 4 for 4 campaign has been on nearly every platform and they've been consistent with their message. Whether it's Pandora, whether it's YouTube videos, whether it's Spotify, they're doing an excellent job of meeting millennials where they are at. And what's more is during this conference call following the earnings release, they reiterated their commitment to the 4 for $4 value platform despite the fact that food inflation may begin by the middle of calendar year 2017 and potentially get worse towards the end of 2017. They said they remained committed towards that particular value platform. No word about the 50 cent Frosties that we saw last summer because they were remarkably successful last year. But in terms of also targeting millennials If you look at their Twitter account, it is completely unique out of any QSR or, in fact, anyone in the restaurant industry for the most part. There are so many social media accounts. Let's take, for example, Chipotle. They spend their entire social media presence basically apologizing when people accost them on Twitter. Wendy's has gotten out in front, and they have some rather acidic posts towards other QSRs, including McDonald's, for example, and they've gotten out in front of the social media game. They have a lot of followers on social media. And the fact that they have personality on social media and don't just use their Twitter feed to shill their product is something that's really next level as far as national QSRs are concerned. And One of the other initiatives that they're doing that could indeed help their millennial customer base above and beyond delivery like what we've talked about are these order kiosks that Layton mentioned earlier. Already, 90% of their locations have an upgraded common point-of-sale system. We talked about a year ago about how important that is for Wendy's because it will be easier to ferret out problems with their point-of-sale system insofar as card security and customer security is concerned but it also shows how important point of sale systems are to Wendy's as they go through this re-imaging process they have a 2020 goal of image activating they say 70% plus of their global system this image activation is essentially re-imaging or creating new builds for restaurants throughout the country and they want new order kiosks to be in each of these locations they're looking at 1,000 order kiosks by the end of this year these order kiosks they feel like will help their throughput but also give some customizability. One thing that we've discussed regarding some of the fast casual restaurants is the fact that their online ordering platforms has led to customizability which is something that customers are now expecting but if you can go and order at a kiosk and get your food really without too much interaction with a clerk behind the counter that reduces the chance that something will be misheard or missaid and you have an opportunity to cut customize your burger, as you want it or customize your chicken sandwich or salad as you want it. And that's something that Wendy's is very big on, the fact that everything on their menu is customizable. So in addition to a value platform, they've got these kiosks that are beginning to be rolled out, especially in some of these new re-imaged locations. And I feel like all of this, when you add it together, leads to an increase in their millennial customer base and an increase in store traffic, while at the same time managing to smooth out their through
1: Wendy's shares approached a 10-year high on the news last Wednesday. Shares popped about 6% to $16 a share and have kept the momentum through trading this week. So a lot coming here for Wendy's as they try to improve not only their in-store experience, but expand their global footprint. Well, we've talked about bankruptcy with grocery retailers as of late, but it appears a full-service restaurant operator may be on the verge of doing the same. Ignite Restaurant Group, owner of Joe's Crab Shack and Brickhouse Tavern restaurant chains, is preparing to file bankruptcy according to those close to the matter. IRGT is the ticker symbol for the publicly traded firm, which is now traded on an over-the-counter market. They first went public in 2012 and were traded on the NASDAQ stock exchange. Shares were down about 99% for the year and are currently trading around $0.02 per share Some of our listeners may be familiar with Joe's Crab Shack and the cult-like following they have built up since their inception in 1991. Overall, the company operates now 112 Joe's Crab Shacks and 25 brick house taverns. Others may be familiarized with the 150-plus location of Romano's Macaroni Grill, which they had sold to Red Rock Partners LLC in 2015. After struggling with competition from the likes of Olive Garden, they closed 17 Joe's locations in fiscal year 2016, 14 in the third quarter alone, and development for the Brick House Tavern was relatively stagnant. They had a net loss of one store during that time frame. As we mull through the details, this bankruptcy really has been swirling around for a while now, or at least rumors of it, as it became clear that the company is no longer viable financially in its current state. The Houston Business Journal reported back in early May that bankruptcy might be an option for Ignite Restaurant Group. The company has been more or less up for sale. They've been calling it seeking strategic alternatives for a while. But really, back in April, it was said that Piper Jeffrey may be in assistance in this regard. Piper Jeffrey is a full service investment bank and asset management firm focused on both mergers and acquisitions. In April, overall, the company, they were fairly despondent that a deal with one or both of their brands would take place. It was in early April that Ignite named a new CEO, Jonathan Tybus. He is actually a current managing director with consulting firm Alvarez and Marsal. Most recently, he was CEO of Last Call Operating Company, which we had talked about at length last year, because they had owned Fox & Hound, Bailey's & Champs, Kitchen & Bar, which were forced to close into bankruptcy last year. They closed several locations, but were eventually purchased for around 26. dollars 0.8 0.8 million dollars and it should be noted that he was hired there after most of the damage at the chain had been done he was basically hired to oversee the bankruptcy and the transition thereafter he was also the head of restructuring attempts at Quiznos, oddly enough so basically his specialty is guiding restaurant chains through tough periods of transition and he is successful and we should remember that with last call operating company They were able to successfully sell off to Fun Eats and Drinks, LLC, which is actually another restaurant operator that has been operating for some time. So a lot of change here happening, Trent, but it seems as though they are still in financial distress and they still need a buyer.
0: That's correct. And John Tybus being hired in this circumstance, I think, is a positive sign if you're looking from the outside in. Now, obviously, the shareholders maybe don't have a ton to look forward to since the value of the stock has dropped off so significantly. But both you and I felt like last call, there was no chance that they were going to be able to sell or get out of bankruptcy. We figured they were just going to have to liquidate and move on from there. But Tybus was able to assist in brokering a deal. And at the time of his hiring, The chairman of Ignite, Paul Vagano, said that he believed and they as a company believed that Tybus and the rest of his team that was assembled underneath him were, and I quote, the right people to lead the company through our ongoing review of strategic alternatives, including the sale process we announced today, end quote. And this was, again, back when Tybus was hired earlier this year. Prior to Tybus coming in as the CEO, Robert Merritt resigned as the CEO. And as a director, he stayed on as a consultant, which often happens in these circumstances as a transition is undertaken, especially one that may end up leading to a possible sale or a possible bankruptcy as, again, they have not declared bankruptcy as yet, or at least as if recording this podcast. Merritt had been on their board since March 2014 and had been their CEO since November 2015 and I think we look at this as almost a cautionary tale of what happens when you name a director on their board as your CEO. We mentioned Dyne Equity doing the same thing recently. As far as the recent SEC filings surrounding Ignite are concerned, this is what we now know through Thomson Reuters. On May 8th, forbearing lenders opted to enter into an amendment to their existing forbearance agreement, which was essentially an agreement to delay foreclosure This pushed the deadline or the forbearance period, if you will, back to May 23rd, 2017. What all this is saying is basically the lenders agreed to push back by about two weeks or 15 days the foreclosure deadline from May 8th, to May 23rd. The suggestion here is that they are giving extra time to Ignite to either find a buyer or get things in order to file bankruptcy protection. The lenders in this case state that the outstanding balance on this credit agreement is at least 133.3 million, although it could be more. And above and beyond the outstanding balance, Ignite's amount outstanding under letters of credit is at least 12.1 million. So we're talking about a lot of debt, but In a lot of restaurants' case, you'll see this amount of debt. What makes the difference with Ignite is the amount of cash on hand, which as of their most recent filing was just 0.7 million dollars their most recent filing came in the third quarter of 2016 is after they were delisted from the nasdaq stock exchange recently they no longer had to put out any earnings reports so we don't have any earnings reports yet in the calendar year 2017 and as we look at the rest of this earnings report from the third quarter of 2016 Layton, there's a lot of negative here
1: We dug up the third quarter of 2016, which was actually released on November 2nd, and it showed revenues of $119.9 million, but this was compared to revenues of $133.4 million in the third quarter of 2015. And then, obviously, revenues declining. Same restaurant sales are also declining. Comparable restaurant sales declined 6.8% company-wide 6.5% down at Joe's Crab Shack and a whopping 8.9% in a decrease at Brickhouse Tavern and Tap. We look at losses on a per share basis of 59 cents versus the 17 cents they recorded a year prior and overall losses of around 15.2 million dollars and this is why Trent we don't often look at adjusted income because their adjusted income was just $0.8 $0.8 million. And really, you're looking deeper at the numbers is seeing that this company's liquidity level was just not adequate. And because of that, you end up looking at the available borrowing capacity of just $25.9 million during this time frame and compare this to the numbers above. And it gets a little scary. This meant that they really only had a cash run rate of about two quarters left at that current pace and as far as the losses are concerned. And when you read a statement from their CEO, And president during that time, Robert Merritt, he's he actually told analysts and was very transparent at the time that they were quite embarrassed by the results and they're not happy with the operating results. For the operating financial performance was not up to par. And they said that not only did they perform poorly in their most concentrated areas of the country, we're talking about Texas, but also performed poorly in the northeastern United States. He had blamed poor economies in Texas on the lack of sales. We're talking about the downturn in oil and gas economies last year and the year prior, but that obviously did not tell the whole story since the company was having issues throughout all of their markets. And
0: you mentioned the cash run rate of two quarters left. Now, that was back in the third quarter. We've run out of those two quarters, which is why we're discussing potential bankruptcy anytime so if you do a little bit of a deeper dig over the last few years you'll notice that their cash on hand or cash and cash equivalents dwindled quite noticeably over the last few years now the company has been struggling to show a profit for a few years now but if you look back at the second quarter of fiscal year 2015 their cash and cash equivalents was 48.4 million dollars with a line of credit that ranged up to 24.3 million in terms of available credit their next quarter the cash on hand actually went up to 51.6 million dollars and their credit also available to them went up at 25.9 million dollars but after the third quarter of fiscal year 2015 this is where you start to see sharp declines. Fourth quarter, fiscal year 2015, only $7.8 million in cash and cash equivalents. This number dwindled down to $7.0 million in the second quarter of fiscal year 2016, and again, down to $700,000. That's all this restaurant chain had in cash on hand during their last earnings report in the third quarter of fiscal year 2016. So the point here is that things for a struggling restaurant chain can turn south in a hurry. We're talking about the same exact thing right now with rave restaurant group and a handful of other fsrs qsrs and fast casual restaurants it only takes a couple years of mid single digit to double digit same store sales losses store closures to cut into your cash reserves that you have on hand after all less than two years ago they were sitting in a solid cash position Were Ignite but again these constant same store sales losses and having to pay back a lot of debt that they had accumulated during that same time has significantly hurt their liquidity and as I mentioned prior to getting into this they were still losing money in prior years. They saw a net loss in fact of $53.5 million in fiscal year 2014. But they were unable to turn things around, and it seemed as though it was alternating between Brickhouse and Joe's Crab Shack, which one had the worst year. But just about every single year, one of those brands had falling same-store sales over the past three to four years. Most recently, it's been both of them. same store sales has been significantly falling and part of the issue with Joe's Crab Shack although they do have a strangely loyal following in some circumstances they are seen more as a tourist destination and maybe some of that tourism money is going elsewhere and towards non-chain or other restaurants. So between the fact that they spent a lot of money trying to cover up basically their losses and that they saw a reduction in cash position between third quarter of fiscal year 2015 and the fourth quarter of that year due to long-term debt reduction this has eroded their ability to maintain operations at their current pace and as we've talked about we still don't know whether or not they will declare bankruptcy or whether they'll be able to sell one or both their brands and it's been said in the past that despite the fact that they're enrolling the help of Piper Jaffray they're open to selling one or both brands to certain operations to try and create some cash to pay off their lenders as we close out this story though one of the most interesting things to me about this story is the fact that shareholder equity fell from fiscal year 2014 to the third quarter of 2016 from 51.299 million to 6.613 million to now negative 19.629 million in the same time so shareholder equity currently negative all of these signs point to a restaurant operator that is struggling but also one that's having a hard time bringing in new business and attracting new customers as Wendy's a company we just talked about has been able to do it's time now for the final segment here on the Food Focus podcast. We call it What We Ate, and each Layton and I will talk about one thing that we tried that's either new to the world of food or new to us, and we begin with Layton as he indulged in some Italian recently.
1: Yeah, what I tried was actually new to me but has been a longtime staple at Caraba's Italian Kitchen. I chose to eat there over this past weekend because of a special $50 gift card promotion in which if you purchase $50 in gift cards, you would get five $10 off vouchers that are good for a later date. So I figured now is the time. I had the chicken marsala, which was their grilled chicken breast with two sides. The recipe itself is actually highly touted by those who review restaurant meals on the internet. The chicken is topped with mushrooms and a special Lombardo marsala wine sauce, and that is really what caught my eye. wanted something that was just more tasty than the regular boiled chicken that I try every week. So overall, Carrabba's has a recipe blog, and it is interesting because they're very transparent about their ingredients. That's kind of the concept behind Carrabba's is that they are a scratch kitchen. We've talked about cheddars in the past. Carrabba's really doesn't mind the customers looking on their online blogs to see how things are made, and their wine sauce is no different. You're able to see the ingredients and the steps within it. Overall, the chicken was delicious, but because of those cooking methods, Trent, it did carry a lot more grams of fat and calories than a normal plain chicken breast would otherwise. 26 grams of fat, 480 calories, and over 1,000 milligrams of sodium. And if you compare that to a plain baked Chicken breast, you're looking at around 120 calories there and about one gram of fat and about 100 milligrams of sodium. So, really, that wine sauce does a lot to boost those numbers. But if you look at the price point for what I paid and how much it was tasty, it's a fairly good deal. I paid around $17. And I should say the price does vary by market. I was looking at menus all across the country. In my market, it's a little cheaper than some others, especially out east where it's a little bit more. But a very tasty chicken breast the one knock on it i would have to say is the fact that the portion is fairly small it's an average size chicken breast but if you're paying that much i would expect a little bit more the sides weren't that large either so overall a fairly good experience and not only that i get those five ten dollar off vouchers
0: I too had chicken, but I did not pay $17. In fact, I paid right around $2 or $1.99 to be specific as I tried Taco Bell's latest limited-time offer, their Naked Chicken Chips. Now, this is a follow-up to the Naked Chicken Chalupa that was a popular limited-time offer not that long ago. They had these Naked Chicken Chips available in a six-pack and and a 12-pack, and basically these are triangular pieces of chicken. They're fairly thin. They're breaded and fried and served with a nacho cheese dipping sauce. Now, I noticed some of the promotional materials for this LTO for Taco Bell, and I wanted to give it a try, but I was disappointed that the nacho cheese sauce was really the only dipping sauce in this case. I would have gone for, say, maybe a guacamole or a salsa instead of their orange nacho cheese sauce, but that's what came with the order and there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the chicken in this case and the chicken that they use for the chalupa it is seasoned about the same i think my biggest disappointment was just the fact that it doesn't come with an option of dipping now as far as layton mentioned his meal carried 26 grams of fat i had a 6 piece order of naked chicken chips again they were $1.99 But those six pieces came with a fat content of 24 grams between the chicken and the nacho cheese sauce, 14 grams of protein overall, and 390 calories, so nearly had the same caloric content and fat content as what Layton ate there at Carabas and the sodium content was even more on my end. It was over 1,100 milligrams of sodium. I don't know that this is an LTO at Taco Bell that I would recommend, although I'm not shy from a lot of Taco Bell LTOs. This one just doesn't seem to take the cake in comparison to what they've come out with in the past. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. Again, today's Food Focus has been brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. For Layton, I'm Trent saying so long until Retail Focus at the end of this week where we discuss earnings from Target and Home Depot as both of those companies have success in their own rights. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery
1: industries. Oh, 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 oh,